So, Parker, you and I decided to start this conversation because we had been already uh, picking on a couple of sutras, uh, starting with the one on in the end guitar number threes uh, on the gratification, danger, and escape. And then we started talking about this uh, sutta in the Anguttara um, Nikaya number nines. Tell us a little about that so that we can get caught up. Yes, that it was talking about that there was a lay person asking the Buddha um, essentially that he enjoys the sensual, sensual pleasures and worldly pleasures of lay life and asking the Buddha, why does, um, why do you enjoy sensual, uh, or why, how can you enjoy seclusion without these sensual uh, pleasures that we have and why would you do it? And then he proposes the teaching of gratification, danger, and escape, that once it's fully investigated, that the original language that I used was the heart jumps or the heart leaps at it. Um, but uh, that was Tanisro's translation. And we see that uh, Sujato's translation is that the mind is eager. Mm -hmm. And that what we were musing over then is, is that um, actually let's get a foundation on the word um, I think it's nekama, which is the renunciation. Because renunciation, the way that we often look at it in uh, English, is a formal renunciation, often a ceremonial renunciation. A taking of vows, a ceremony, can be a marriage, can be a vow of poverty, it can be worthy ordinations, those kind of things. And this is what we normally think of as renouncing, because the word that we have in English, the renouncing or saying it out loud. Mm. So to renounce something is to yell out loud, I am done with you. Yes, a rule, yeah. sort of like celibacy. Like, I'm not doing this ever anymore. Right. I'm not ever going to do that ever again. But it's almost done with a sense of loss or like giving up something. All right. That it's hard to do, but I know it's good for me. And so I'll do it. Which is exactly what was talking about in the sutta to where the layman says that he does not want to renounce those things because, in fact, he is getting the gratification from it. Yes. Yes. And so we're talking now about a different kind of renunciation. And the different kind of renunciation is, is because now we see the danger. Mm -hmm. And now that we can see the danger, that the renunciation is part of the escape. Now, this is not a one-time shot. Yes, it's ongoing. Right. It's not a one-time shot, and we think of renunciation as like a great big deal. So it can either be a great big deal ceremonially, or it can be a great big deal naturally, is the way we kind of think of this thing about renunciation. 
But oh no, every time we see the gratification in something, we also see the danger in it and then take the renunciation and escape route yet once again. Over and over and over again, every time we get stuck in the gratification of it, it's time to wakey, wakey, wake up because Duca five seconds ahead, you see. Yes. This is the wisdom. The wisdom is to see the danger of the Duca rather than the Duca itself. Getting stuck in the Duca is hard to get out of it. But here we're talking about seeing it in advance, seeing it coming, simply because it's already related that we've seen it enough that it's related to the gratification, which is what this guy that went to the Buddha could only see. He could only see the gratification. But the Buddha saw both the gratification and the danger, not just a big one time, but over and over Mm -hmm over and over yet once again. And so this is an an important quality in the teaching is for us to continue to be on guard, to wake up to the things that we do take gratification in. And an example of that would be the gratification of getting angry. Because that's a power grab. Yes, it's the instinctual like feeling I am taking control here. I have power here. I have power here, right? You can't do that to me, officer. You, how dare you rustle me to the ground? Okay, and so that power uh, grab, by the way, in that particular case that I just mentioned, is very dangerous. Yes, you want to the police be strong enough within your own heart to surrender completely to them. And that's the wisdom, knowing the dangers, knowing, knowing the, the gratification of anger, right. but knowing it's not worth it. <laughs> exactly. And so that's the escape. He who gets angry at the wrong time gets imprisoned. Mm-hmm. But he who can see the danger in the gratification of anger can find the escape from prison. He's going to be okay with the cops. But he's not trying to make a point because he's actually afraid of him. If you're not afraid of the cops, then you're not going to get angry at him. You're not going to resist him. Exactly. But in fact, it even has to do with the way they put the handcuffs on. So I have heard. But the guys who resist them get tight cuffs. Those who are very quietly volunteering, they just get a loose cuff. And, you know, they like their life is much easier. You volunteer. There's no need to be afraid. These people have the rules that they're going to follow and all go along to get along happily. Let them do their rules. Okay. Well, in a big situation like that, can we not do that in the very tiny situations with people who think that they're in authority, like your dad, your mom, and all kinds of situations. We can take that strength to see the danger in resisting authority. Exactly. That in fact, the Buddha's way would be to 
happily cooperate with the authority. And I can give you many examples of that because he was good friends with King Kassanad and Ben Bishar. Hmm. Right? And so he did not reason. For instance, when King Pasanati came with his troops to get uh, uh, Angulimala, the Buddha didn't resist him at all. He looked straight at him <laughs> and said, do you see anyone here who fits the description of the one whom you're seeking? Yes. And, and that was his way of conveyance. One of the things, by the way, that I've said before is, is that um, you, you probably heard enough of the story to recognize that there was a direct connection between when Jesus went into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, crashing into the temple, tearing out the money changers, and getting strung up within a week. Didn't take many days. That all happened all in one kind of an event. So you could say that he actually could not see the danger of going into uh, the um, the temple and raising Cain. Same situation exactly. Mm -hmm. Same situation. If Jesus really wanted to get rid of the money changers, the thing that he could have done was go make friends with Caiaphas and point that out to him to say, you know, You'd be a much grander caliph here with this great big hat of yours if you didn't have all of these bankers and money changers in the temple. Why don't you chase them outside? <laughs> yes, that compliance and friendship is the way to go. Right. Especially with people who have um, a lot of people bought into their rules, like kings or police officers. Right, exactly. And so this is one of the ways of dealing with authorities is that you don't resist them in any way. You operate with them in a friendly way. Make friends with them and get what you want from them because you're friends with them rather than deal with them <laughs> because they're not doing the things you want them to do. So this is actually quite a major teaching, just looking at it in this difference between the life of Jesus and the life of the Buddha himself. It's, you know, this is actually wise ways of looking at, at authorities. Mm -hmm. That yes, we do get a lot of gratification in resisting authority. It's the rebel. There's a rebel in every one of us. We go through that phase starting at the age of two. That's why they call it the terrible twos. And the first dirty word that a child learns is the word no. <laughs> that is the whole Oedipus complex, right? That's exactly right. It's the root of um, uh, Freudian psychology is that rebel within us. And that we do that within our own minds also on a regular basis in the sense that we've all got all of this set of rules built up in our minds. Mm -hmm. And then when we remember what the rule is, we naturally don't like it and resist it. We're still playing that two-year-old child who's learning to say the word no. And so that's the dialogue between the parent and the child within us, and it's almost nonverbal. It happens sometimes so fast. Yes. 
And here we are having a war between ourselves, between the Silabasa Paramasa and the, um, <clears throat> the greed for um, uh, the pleasure of resisting the rules that we make ourselves. <laughs> it literally is something on the order of playing chess with oneself. Yes. To where, um, well, I think that though, that's not a very good reference because generally the scene is, is that the individual who is playing chess with himself by using the chessboard is actually stretching his intellectual capabilities to where what we're talking about here is getting stuck in that old dialogue. Yes, that, that it's willfully to... playing instead of curiosity where it's more of an argument. With right, where this is just an old argumented dialogue that happens so fast in the mind. Um, an example of the guy on the diet who finds himself in front of the refrigerator door with that thought that you're on the diet. No, I'm not. <laughs> and this is right back to gratification, danger, and escape, where so. <laughs> lay person is understanding it from a rule or, or the ordinary renunciation or celibacy of you shouldn't do sensual pleasures, and that's where the confusion comes from. But when you can investigate it and see it for yourself, there's no need for the argument. Right, there's no need for this argument with inside of our own minds. This is how we become whole. That's why this teaching is so powerful. It's not because these are great big one-off events. It's over and over and over and over again. And it's at that very subtle level of the parent ego state and the child ego state that Byrne worked out. But what Byrne didn't understand was what to do about it. Exactly, yes. That's what the psychologists were having trouble with, is they could see the problem. They could see the danger, but they couldn't see the escape. That it is they... so simple and beautiful. And <laughs> yes, I reading Burn and stuff, that they have it outlined down to a T of how the dukkha works, uh, uh -huh. but they don't have the simple method to get out of it. Right. And the simple method is, is to see it over and over and over again. You have to go through that cycle over and over again. Every time we see the gratification, we see the danger also. And then we take the escape. We sneak out the side. Exactly. So now uh, the, the, the joy or the pleasure of being a me because you see it fulfills the, um, the job of the self-preservation instinct. And the way that it fulfills that is by saying there is a me. Mm -hmm. This is where that uh, rebel comes from, or this resistant two-year-old child. This stuff happens very early in life, you see. If we get set up with it so that we become a rebel, <laughs> and so uh, in, in, this, in this rebellion, 
that we do. We do it because we take pleasure in that there is a me here. I exist and I like that. These are the childish toys that you talk about, right? That when I grow old, I can put away my childish toys. Uh-huh. So the, the self is actually a child's toy. It's the first thing that comes by, the me that's there. Me that's not mommy. You see, the infant can't tell the difference between me and mommy. But the two-year-old can and it's funny that's in the Western culture, there was something that happened in the 1950s that was so profound, but most of people don't know about it, but it's actually become part of our culture. There was a book written, I think I mentioned to you this before, written by Dr. Spock. And it was a book on how to take care of babies up through the age of two. And the things about bottle feeding and breastfeeding and all of this kind of stuff that was quasi-sexual and a big no-no in the 1950s. A doctor was writing and giving all of this information. And people followed his information and destroyed, literally wrecked the baby boomers at a very young age with what they called potty training. Yes, uh, we had this. Yes, I remember this. Yes, and, and this is where the anal have. comes from. There, there, your Republican Party is. Mm -hmm. Not all old generations are the same, but the generation that's old now are all baby boomers, which were raised on potty training. Um, I've heard your distinction of anal. What is your understanding of the other two? Um, oh, oral, oral. Anal, anal and phallic. Okay. Um, well, first off, oral starts prenatally. They've already done a lot of ultrasounds, but they knew that already, that the baby is making uh, sucking sounds before it's born. That, in fact, sucking... Uh, uh, and uh, breathing are very closely related. And if a child doesn't breathe within the first moment after his uh, after he is fully born, or at least by the time the umbilical cord is cut, you know, doc, so you got to make sure that he's breathing. A lot of children, most of them will do it on their own. But in the 1950s, they had the idea that they had to beat the child. Mm hmm. You know, the whole story of lifting him above his head uh, uh, upright like that by the heels. And wham. <laughs> I have heard that story. I think there's a good reason I haven't. I don't think it's being done as much. Yeah. That, well, they got over that. The doctors yeah. figured out that that was not a good idea. But that was uh, um, um, coming out of kind of the dark ages. Mm -hmm. um, and so... There was a lot of old traditions that were set up that way. But meanwhile, the sucking now is what we would call the oral phase. So the oral, anal, and phallic, the oral phase is when everything is about life support. This is before the child can walk. 
a tender infant laying in a crib, you will put a mobile in front of its face, but all it can do is wave its hands around the mobile, maybe touching it or not, but an infant has no control over his fingers. And when a child is very infant tender like that, it is desperately uh, in need of being taken care of on a very frequent basis. Children cannot be abandoned for hours and hours when they're very, mm -hmm. very young. Okay. So those who do, who are abandoned for one reason or another, and one, one example of that is given a caretaker who is scared to death of a baby, doesn't know what to do with it, and doesn't you know, know how to get help to get someone to help him with it. And that happens sometimes. I, I know uh, on some occasions. So this is what we mean by abandonment. And so the abandonment is one of the earliest aspects of the oral um, personality type. Now, when people get fixed into the oral anal and phallic, um, Alexander Lowen, who was a student of Freud, uh, looked at body types. Mm -hmm. He actually, after he studied with Freud, he actually got a medical degree uh, in Switzerland. Uh, it's the bioenergetics, right? Precisely so. Wow, I'm impressed. Yes, so this is bioenergetics, and that is where uh, he takes his oral, anal, and phallic and puts it into body types. So that if a child is unnourished properly when it's oral phase, then it will have a collapsed chest and have trouble breathing. The anal type normally has a big barrel chest. He puffs himself up. He's the big toddler who now can walk. Okay. Um, and this is also the one that's mostly associated with being overweight. And then the phallic is the upright uh, 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 child who is then very, very correct for going into competition with the parent of the same sex for the uh, affections of the opposite, which was now the Electra and the um, uh, Oedipal. Oedipus, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the Electra complex um, is when uh, a girl will compete with her mom for her father's uh, behavior, but these women wind up being gangsters sometimes. <laughs> Because they destroy the competition. <laughs> um, and so the the stage after that is called latency. And that's when the child goes into the uh, age six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then starting at about age 11, that's when they go into puberty and then into the teens. So that latency period is actually quite active, but in, in psychological terms, um, the child, whichever way he's already going by the age of six, is going to continue into that age until he becomes his own personal train wreck when he becomes into puberty. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so those are those stages and they're actually real. I mean, they're really, really worth studying developmental psychology. We are reading um, games people play. So I have an understanding of the um, the anal being a sort of, it can manifest as like a resentment. The game that was mentioned was um, the person who's uh, does small like microaggressions, you might call them, or breaking small rules at a party. The schmiel, I think the game is. Um, yes, uh-huh. Uh, how do yes, the other two manifest? The um, how do oral and phallic manifest then? Uh, that one's sort of clear with the um, okay. The two-year-old, the, the, the two-year-old is underhanded and dirty, but the but the phallic is highly competitive and sexualized. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and these two sphincter muscles are only inches apart. <laughs> Between the asshole and the dick, and which are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes psychology so fun is because it's just human nature. <laughs> so it's the subtle compared to the blatant competition of the, say, uh -huh. businessman or CEO or politician. Right. So you could see the three of them is the suck up, the asshole and the dick. Those are your three personality types. And oral is often um, associated in men with feminine behavior because women are naturally supposed to be more oral anyway. And dykes are the ones who become... The more please me, right? Yes. That's so language you use? Okay. Yes, exactly. The liars, the lying suck-ups. Now, here's the thing that's really amazing in all of this is that while some individuals get stuck on and into uh, particular traits, we can think of that as merely which habits are stronger, but we were all born and were raised and went through these uh, developmental stages, each one of us picking up our own habits along the way. Mm -hmm. And our and development so, was not perfect. We <laughs> weren't thrown through the Tolku system. We, like the we, are all, right? we are all abandoned. We are all messed up. We are all longing for being taken care of, and we are all longing for freedom, and we're all longing for sticking it <laughs> to, the, to the man. <laughs> and the question is, are we going to smear him with shit, or are we going to stick it to him with the thing that we've got now? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> because those are the tools that we had. 
when we were two years old, the only thing that we had that we could produce and uh, for sure was our own poop. That's why it's called anal. <laughs> and the oral didn't have any tools, so they just the oral, sucked up. The oral has no tools. Okay. So the anal has a pile of shit. And the palate, he's got a brand new prick. <laughs> yes. Now, it's very interesting because most staid college professors will not bring the humor into it, but the humor is what makes it so interesting. There's all of this, you know, low-class, dirty language that we are as adults are supposed to avoid is what childhood is all about. It's about the rules that we impose upon children to not be children. Stop playing with that thing is basically what we keep. I mean, that's that's the rule. That's the number one rule in our life is put that down. It doesn't belong to you. Stop playing with that pile of shit. Stop playing with that thing. <laughs> you know, that's that's <laughs> what they're all about. Depending upon the age. And if we're raised wisely, those rules will be done in a very nurturing way. So we don't get raised in a sense where we have no boundaries uh, and animal, but we have some right. guidelines, but those are wise guidelines that are taught nurturingly. This would be then the middle path then would be um, uh, then the, the correct way of how to raise a child. Mm -hmm rather than all oh, this is a special way or like a new special diet or whatever. No, it's um, it's got to be a balance. And um, the balance has to be kind of maintained all along. But very, very few parents know about the developmental stages of children before they have one to play with. That's where I'm really lucky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And and so, um, actually, it was quite interesting to watch Kitty go through those stages. We we used to play games with her, knowing, I mean, about the jealousy. She used to get ferociously unhappy when uh, Tamara and I would show any affection at all. Uh -huh. So how we did that is we said, "Come join us. Come join. You can be here too." <laughs> We'll put uh -huh. you in the middle, and she gets all warm and gushy and all of that kind of stuff. Now, when we cuddle, she can care less. <laughs> so that's that's how you handle jealousy. That in fact, we talk about the dogs being jealous. So I think that uh, Kitty's not going to have a whole lot of trouble with jealousy in her life because we've been having it as such a toy to play with. But she was really jealous when she was little, and now. Not a bit. So the um, the please me then is uh, or the oral is like an essential like I can't trust the world, but it wants something from me, so I have to give it what it wants, but I don't have any power right. over it. And I also want things from the world. But mm -hmm. I'm not very likely to get it. Mm -hmm. This is the try hard. 
Right. So this is the try hard, the please me, and it's also the suck up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yes, those are the drivers. Wow, you're getting pretty good with this TA stuff. <laughs> yeah, so those are the drivers and would be associated with the with the uh, oral. And also people who are uh, considered problems with oral are also considered to be more psychologically messed up. You could think about it like that, though that doesn't necessarily mean the most damage because some of the phallics. But they have a disorder a per se. Right, but they're really they're really messed up. They don't go around doing a whole lot of damage, but they're really messed up. The phallics would be what you call a sociopath, like they. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that sociopath actually could be a combination of things along the way that brings them into the point of being a sociopath. So I wouldn't say that it would be only phallic issues, because I can see oral issues in, in the sociopath. Mm -hmm. uh, can see a lot of anal in the sociopath, too, especially that issue of the rebel. Okay, so there's the needy, the rebel, and uh, the competitor. Yes. Now, how does this, um, uh, they've explained um, the idea of, I think it's schizophrenia, which is the lack of a parent and the just scared, scared child ego state. And then there's the anxiety or very strict person, which is a strong parent. And um, could you map those on to those three? Uh, yes, you can see that in fact, uh, at, at various stages of life that that happens, especially um, the, the rebel child that is rebelling against the old authoritarian uh, teacher or parent. But a, a parent who is going to be strict with the child is going to be strict probably all the way along the way with the child. So if that child, if the parent is strict during the oral phase, then the child is going to feel abandoned. If the parent is uh, strict with the child during the um, anal phase, then um, either he may become very, very rebellious or the rebellion may be beat out of him. Sure. Okay. And then in the uh, in the phallic stage, um, that beat down rebellion may remanifest itself as highly competitive and also an oversense of self being better than others. And that would be where I would say that uh, the narcissist would come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be because of um, uh, both abandonment and uh, uh, being beaten down as uh, an infant, or let us say in the two-year-old phase or in the anal phase, and then uh, something happened and he picks himself up, dusts himself off and roars like a lion that's been beaten down for too long. Mm 
Sure. Okay, and this can happen at about the age of three or four. This is, in fact, when uh, typically uh, in human history is when a child is old enough to be put to work, which is someplace in the range of four to six. And I would say that that often depends upon whether or not mom is at a second baby. So it's so up it, to two is the oral, and then two to four is the anal where the kid's getting potty trained, and then the four to six. Mm -hmm is the right when they start that, to get go go along get along all of that right and 18 months in in there is the typical age of beginning to start walking so walking at the age of two stumbling around going through uh uh the age uh, and the best thing to do by the way with potty training is to not train the child because it's the training that the potty trainer uh, trainee rebels from. That's <laughs> where Spot got it so wrong. <laughs> and so the uh, the better way to do it is to let the child train themselves through observation without uh, um, uh, complaining or requesting anything from the child but rather praising the child when they don't need the diaper anymore or today. Sure, and that's... A diaper today or you can do it on your own. Uh-huh. And that's showing them how to use the toilet and uh, they'll watch and they'll be curious to play with themselves. Oh, get them their own toy toilet so that they can poop <laughs> in. Because they're not big enough for the for the big one. So we got to get them a, uh, uh, maybe even two different uh, small sizes. Yeah, we talked about uh, Montessori in the past. Um, and wow. I didn't have Montessori education that young, but that's what it's trying to cultivate that curiosity and playing. And you're not following a homework to do something, you're playing with Precisely. it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So that's, that would be the way then to, to do that. Uh, but since that didn't happen for so many of us and we wound up in that kind of rebellion, it's good that we know when that pleasure of being the rebel comes up. Uh -huh. Yes. When we see things like how dare, like here's a good example at the immigration. How dare that Russian come in here without a mask on? He's the only one in the whole place without a mask and nobody's saying anything to him. <laughs> okay, and that rebel. Ah. <laughs> I wonder how many people felt that way, but he was probably also being the rebel. So here we have a, now a whole room full of two-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that he was in fact looking for it. <laughs> and so that's how that rebellion kind of thing happens and it's um you could say that that might be the way of looking at how mobs get formed or political parties that they are like the the republicans it's not that they've done a thorough investigation and realized that masks don't work it's that right. they're rebellious and it's same with the democrats that if they if they were truly nurturing and not rebellious, they would just educate the Republicans. Right. But that rebelliousness in the Republicans sparks the rebelliousness. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> and the fight that, started. 
And that feeling of rebelliousness is actually the feeling of I am. Mm -hmm. We can it's see the feeling of existence. It's the feeling of separation. It's the two year old coming alive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the birth of the self. And we nurture that because we get great benefit out of it and great pleasure being the self. And it takes a long time through practice of Anapanasati and whatnot to begin to see how dangerous that being self and selfishness is. Mm -hmm. Because only can after we see the dangers in it and, and how we wind up uh, pouting and hurting and being angry and uptight and upset and all this kind of stuff just to protect this self that we thought was so precious. A lot of people don't like it when we talk about no self. That's not actually the right way of thinking about it because yes, uh, when yeah. you say cause that means it's either there it is or there it's not. And then people have the idea of you don't exist. But right, exactly. It's more no soul or not self. Right. So, but the real issue, though, is, is that sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel selfish. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's up. Sometimes it's down. But when it, it comes up, we, it comes up because we get gratification from it. It's the protection. Mm -hmm. The protection from perhaps some danger that we perceive that actually isn't real. The danger is going into protection mode. Yes, and so we have an investigation with that instead of the the way we are trained, which is the Siobhata Paramasa. You, you shouldn't feel this way. You shouldn't be having this instinctual uh, <laughs> wanting for the self, right? Uh-huh. And there it comes, it naturally. It comes right up. Whenever we're told you shouldn't do this, that, and the other thing, you said, well, yes, I can, too. <laughs> uh -huh. But this is the teaching of gratification, danger, and escape, that you, you don't need to argue, you can investigate. Uh-huh, exactly. When we begin to see this selfish, this selfness that coming up, that we take such gratification, and we can then see the danger of it, then we can find the escape. Generally, the escape is... I'm glad I don't have to be selfish that now. <laughs> yes. That <laughs> everything is okay. I don't have to hold grudges because who's going to hold the grudge other than this self that we hold so dear? Exactly. That's a lot of work. Uh-huh. And we hold this self so dear because of the um uh the way that children are raised mm -hmm. and so we wind up holding ourselves and and you can see that in the society and the language about uh, independence so with this the oral uh, manifest would like in behaviors of myself when i'm communicating with someone that there's like a fear of um that they won't approve of me for communicating this or the the position of starting from the position of a victim of I'm not going to communicate this and I need to be able to communicate this rather than just communicating like a champion that 
they mm-hmm. asked a question, I can get it across just fine that it's not a one up, one down. Would that be accurate? Um, yes. In fact, you could say that that's true. That in fact, the you could look at it this way, that in the twos, the rebellion itself is the protection against the fear. And possibly a lot of the fear came from learning to walk. Because we fall down and get hurt a lot. We do a lot of crying from the from the age of uh, about 18 months to um, up until uh, about two. Everything seems to hurt in the, in the oral phase. This is why we call them tender infants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and so um, the human brain there is still operating and alive and growing and learning all kinds of things. And the more things that hurt when we're infants, the more they hurt for the rest of our lives. And so people who are tenderized when they're tender, they remain tender people their whole life. They never toughen up. And so that that's the idea of the abandonment issue is, is that um, um, that when someone has and it, we don't know exactly when, where or how it happens because everybody's got their own story with it. And we all have the feeling of an abandonment. We all don't like to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Some people are very, very slow to say goodbye. I do it with a particular ritual at the end of my story, uh, at the end of our talk. I'll, I'll mention it's it's time to go, and then we'll talk for three, four, five minutes, and then it's time to go. And what we do during that time is to rehearse or review what we've done already. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, that gives a much gentler goodbye than if the video just cuts out. And it's the same with saying hello, too, because we don't really trust the person. We need that ritual to make us feel secure. Right, exactly. Hey, you're becoming a master psychologist here. (laughs) (laughs) I need to put you with Debbie. (laughs) (laughs) And so... um, Wow, I'm impressed. I really am, Parker. That's great. Uh, So, wrapping back up with this, this oral, anal, and phallic that Freud figured out, Byrne deeply went into, and so did others. I mean, even Maslow's hierarchy is built upon this. That basic foundation is the oral. We have to get fed. It's interesting about, if you can put it this way, oral, anal, phallic, latency, and then as the adult would be dhamma. And here we have a whole lot of people who want to to devote their lives to teaching the dhamma, but they got to (laughs) eat. They're all the way back, slam back to the bottom. They can't stay up at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, Every time we bring money into it, we just, you know, the whole ladder collapses. The whole show just collapses back into aura. The need. That we get an education up to the point of following rules and learning how to think a certain way. And that is the 
would that be the phallic and then right the so that education that we're getting now is the dhamma where right. we can put those yeah, toys so away exactly the dhamma is the actual way that things really are um and i was actually changing the way um uh but we could say it's the same thing in the sense of um we turn everything upside down because of the money the money is actually at the bottom of the of the pile that's true yes. in Maslow's hierarchy, and it's also true in the sense that uh, that we got to breathe and we got to eat. And it brings back up those instinctual fears we've been raised in the society where money is so important that if you don't have money, you Scared. can't eat. Right, mm -hmm. right. Money and food that they're they're so deeply tied together because we need food. So that takes us back to that oral phase when, in fact, our society produces way more food than we eat. They say that worldwide, half the food that is produced is, is thrown out as garbage, not recycled in the sense of even making animal food or anything. It goes into landfills and, and whatnot. And it starts with um, being overly picky over which vegetables can get sold. About half the produce, or not half of it, but uh, a good 10% or more of all uh, produce uh, is just thrown out before it ever makes to to the market. <laughs> uh -huh. Where some people would very much like to have a uh, a, a deformed tomato. Problem. Yeah, we have these rules of um, if it looks bad, then it must be bad. Especially with the restaurant industry, uh, the right. customer being exactly. first. Exactly, and so the way that the food looks is very important to some people. Mm -hmm. Why does it have to be important to everybody? Because it's important to some people. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But look at all the food etiquette that we have that winds up being extraordinarily wasteful. A lot of exactly. it hygiene only uh, and, and whatnot. Okay. So um, that's all at the, at the very oral phase. And we, each individual human, Spends way too much time mentally in oral activities, the stuff that happened when we were really, really little kids, when we couldn't take care of ourselves and everything was dangerous and everything. And so you can see that that's the foundation for the two-year-old to rebel against. So the heavier the time that they have as a, as a tender infant, then the heavier their two-year-old time is going to be also. Mm -hmm. And so these things are deeply interrelated. But the point is, is that it doesn't matter what step anybody is, if we can come out of this as an adult, it's by watching this dialogue internally between the rules and the rebel. Yes, exactly. That it's, it is, they're just artificial lines that are drawn and you know as psychology develops there are more artificial lines drawn and other stuff but um 
-hmm. what it is is that at the essence we weren't raised in a nurturing way and now we're learning to raise ourselves in a nurturing way that's right exactly it's time to be reborn again and do it right to set <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's those kind of metaphors. Okay, that that makes sense. I have one extra Dhamma question that um, to ask. Okay. Yeah, it's about um, the language of liking and disliking and um, satisfaction, dissatisfaction. Are those referring to the same words of sukha and dukkha? They're deeply related, aren't they? Yes. So um, we could use actually the word pleasure and use it in two ways. One is the pleasure of the senses, and then the other is a mental pleasure. Mm -hmm. All right. The taste of ice cream is pleasurable. The cool breeze in the afternoon after it's rained, very pleasurable. That makes sense, yes. Um, being here talking with you and speaking of the Dhamma, very pleasurable. Mm -hmm. Having my arm rest on this thing, it's very pleasurable. My friends, the family here, <laughs> Joining each other and the touch and the sensations, very pleasurable. Okay, so this is the pleasure of the senses. And then there is the pleasure of the mind. Very, very similar. And is, this one seems also probably more closely related to the pleasure of the breath because when we do feel pleasure in the mind we often always do take an in-breath or maybe that's just a habit of an old Anapanasati fan <laughs> <laughs> so that pleasure then that we're talking about can be the liking the Vedana, because there is also displeasure in the sense of not liking. And so we can almost think of it as do the, uh, a seed and a plant. Or the beginning stage and then the growth stage. So this basic pleasure and displeasure that we're talking about is is Vedana the feeling that then gives rise to when it gets big and it can get bigger and bigger depending upon our ignorance how big it gets depends upon how stupid we are to keep <laughs> rolling yes. on it gets like snowball effect okay and when it gets full grown that's when it's real ginormous feelings like um uh lovesick or stage fright these are the woeful states, right? Right. These are the woeful states that we can go through and uh, is sort of a spiraling down. And so the question is, where does our language change 
in order to put milepost on the way into it. The Buddha puts the milepost in the sense of that the, this feeling or basic little pleasure, then I like it or it's pleasing to me, then becomes I want it ignorantly. And from the wanting it, I got to have it. And when I got to have it, there's a me then that is born and collected in order to want it very badly. And that's the dukkha. So that's the Buddha's path. We can think of it in other ways in the sense of uh, the, the pleasure manifest as lust simply because we keep thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it over and over again until the pleasure seems to focus in on just that one thing to where if we recognize it in other cases because we have so much sensory awareness there is so much to take pleasure over mm -hmm. yes that don't get focused into going down a rat hole. So it's the the tanha, like the feeling of push pull, and then the upadana. Is that when we start to think that's my push pull that I I have to right. I need that thing? Yes, this is the part of uh, excuse me, a particular samuppada that is often confusing to people because they think that it's got to be this causes that causes this causes that causes that marching down that line of uh, vedana, tanha, upadana, uh, bhava, jati, dukkha. Okay, no. Basically, what happens is is that as tanha develops. That development is also the development coexisting with the self, so that when full clinging is going on, it is the self that's doing the clinging. So, as uh, looking at it like this, as the uh, I like it, I see it, I like it, I go, I go, I go, that's the development of the self, as is also the approaching and then the grasping turns into clinging and then that clinging is now the self is here in other words the clinging requires a cling or as well as a cling on but that's an old uh, uh star trek joke too young for so, that <laughs> no well they had klingons you see yeah. And clinging and cling and clingers and and those that things that are Klingons. So, as your as the development of the upadana is also the development of the self. So the dukkha comes after the birth. Is this where we say that it's wanting something I'll, we don't I'll right have? Right along with it is another way of saying it is right along with it. In other words. The suffering comes when he who suffer comes. And he who suffers comes when he wants something. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so basically, uh, a, a way of looking at it is more so is looking at Petitra Samapada backwards. 
so that we begin to see all oh, the dukkha is there now because the self is there, but the self is there because of the longing is there and the longing is there because the pleasure was there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're all so deeply related that it's hard to say that nah, da -na -nah, da -na -nah, da -na -nah, it's not really like that. It's much more like that things happen together in there. That it's, it's and we can recognize that it's based on ignorance when we go to the wanting. Right. So another way of thinking about it is uh, if you know anything about the way that any particular thing is, is manufactured, it's not that you start with an assembly line and as you go down that assembly line, things are actually added to it. But that the things that are part of that had their own assembly lines often. So there's like for the assembly line for putting laptops together, you're going to have to have fully fresh uh, finished screens, fully finished keyboards, fully finished processors, fully finished motherboards, fully finished um, uh, uh, bits and pieces for that motherboard, like Wi-Fi's and internets and all of that, fully finished um, hard drives, either SSD or uh, 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 hard disk. And each one of those components had their own line going on. So the hard drives had their own assembly line that had plates and uh, arms and actuators and reed heads and electronics and all of that. But the those things had to be assembled from other places too. So it was a great big mess. When you understand it like that, then now that's the better way to understand Paticca Samapada is we've only been taking it apart not so that you can show how this fixes this, 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 that. It's much more like the way that the clock works, that those things have to work in there together so that that thing moves and then moves this way when this thing twists. You got to have a spring in there also, right? And so they're quite deeply interrelated that way. We can't say that this is a step-by-step -step causation of a sequence of events, but rather that the causation is intertwined. It's a little bit complicated. But at, but what ha can happen is, is that we can back up in time to begin to see these things earlier and earlier in the process of the of the manufacture. So that we can get down to there to that level of perception and consciousness. That's the whole point is, is that, but the big, very big stopping point that's good enough stopping point is at Veda now. So that if we have content, if we have wisdom at the point of the contact so that we know what we're feeling, that either pleasure or displeasure, then we don't have to go into the, um, the dukkha. We can stay at the at wisdom at that level. That's good enough. But and so these are the sensual pleasure and displeasure. Um, how or do, mental. Or mental. So they, they both arise in the same. Uh, would they both be using the words sukha and dukkha, but there's just the 
clarification when you translate them to English of uh, whether it's mental or physical? Well, some of that also has to do with the Sankara, which we could also say was learning. And there's so many examples we can use physically. One would be the two different people. Oh, excellent example, Durian. Do you know Durian? Do you know the story behind Durian? Mm -hmm. okay. um, we'll start with that in Singapore, it is against the law to bring Dorian on the subway. Because Dorian is a, is a sweet fruit that many people in Asia really, really enjoy, but okay. it has an odor to it that many people who were not raised with Dorian, they don't like it. I don't want to have durian anywhere near me. I've, I've, I actually have eaten it and it's nice, but I don't want it around me enough, close enough to where I can taste it because it stinks so bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how we were raised, if you were raised around durian, then you would not have any trouble with the smell and then you'd go ahead and eat it. But if you never, okay, the same thing exactly true with lactose intolerance. There are many, many things that are that way. And who's to say how physical and how mental is it? Why is it? I mean, it's, uh, do, do, does the nose actually change? How about with, uh, uh, with uh, being lactose intolerant? You know what I'm talking about. People who drink milk their whole life can drink milk as adults. People who stop drinking milk in their oral stage of life and are put on solid food and never drink milk again, when you put milk in their coffee as an adult, it'll make them sick. So it's intertwined with the instincts and it's not um, right. So like a line drawn here or there. Okay, exactly. Is yeah, that, that is a physical or is that a mental thing? Lactose intolerance. <laughs> and that's what we see that Sankara is a way of referring to these things, but the Buddha was not a neuroscience. Right. But he knew all he needed to know. What you needed to know to understand that all of this stuff accumulates over time, and that's in now how we respond. So when and you, the response is all that's needed. And when you have durian come close to you, your sand cars will determine whether you want to get rid of it or not. And if we can understand that process then we can recognize we have complete control over that. We do not have to be repulsed by the smell of the durian. We can, in fact, decide I'm going to like it. I can enjoy it if I want to. But this is what we mean by developing a taste for something. What do we develop when we develop a taste for something? Like mushrooms, for instance. A lot of kids don't have mushrooms when they're kids. And then they're, when they're adults, they have mushrooms, and some people don't like mushrooms, and then they develop a taste for it. Others would be like uh, asparagus and cauliflower, and what's that other one? Uh, I forgot it. Anyway. Um, this is a little taboo in the uh, social climate, but is this also with 
like sexual interest as well? Precisely so. Actually, yes. Um, there has been quite a lot of research into what makes a dyke a dyke. That seems to be the one that the psychologists really go fumble over. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yes, and so we see that the society will have certain rules around these sankaras that these cannot be changed. Right, right, because of the social norms to where the dyke mm -hmm. would be one who had both issues of, of anal and phallic. And she really did win. <laughs> She'd got it. <laughs> She's the woman here, and she'll kill any man who comes by. <laughs> uh -huh. I've actually had a um, a good friend. I learned a lot from her. I I give you this much about her. She smoked cigars and played the string bass. <laughs> and she wore pants and a hat, baggy pants. She was very interesting. I would not call her a lady, mm -hmm. but I should. <laughs> so, um, and and you can see, actually, un understanding that she was actually rebelling against something. Her whole persona was rebelling against. So she had to have. Yes, yeah, so when you brought up the cigar, it comes up with the, the Edward Bernays and the social movement where the um, he propagated women smoking cigars. Right, like right. Power because, play. Right, that's a, that, right. The smoking of the cigar, that's that power move. <laughs> that in fact that's the other side of the story which very few people tell and that is you know that uh, Freud has says that sometimes a cigar is not a it uh, is just a cigar you know what he's referring to there is it because the men use the cigar as a phallic symbol like a gun but the other side of the joke is, is that sometimes a cigar is not a cigar, it's a turd. <laughs> <laughs> and why that is true is because the cigar now is the representation of the, re the rebel, not the challenger. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. um, in the movie, the, the the century of the self is the one that the the idea was that the cigarettes represented the penis. And that's why, yes. yeah, mm -hmm. it would be a good right. marketing so, campaign. So women taking their their power. Uh, and and during those days, tobacco was taboo for women. That in fact, that still existed to the point that by the 1950s and 60s in the United States, the demographic age limits of men and women were so strikingly different was because women didn't drink and didn't smoke and men did. It seems that a lot of the oral anal and phallic in today's day are dismissed as pseudoscience or 
like put off his sexual stuff. Um, what is what is your understanding of that? That they've gotten more. Oh, you understand what did, I'm getting at? We worked really hard to trash mouth Freud. Yes, that's what I'm getting at. Is yeah. What is yeah. the understanding of why that is? Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's involved with it. Um, part of it is is that he was kind of a pioneer. He didn't build freeways. He hacked his way through the woods of the mind. <laughs> and psychology has is now looking for freeways. They're looking for full results. So that's part of it is, is that that's very early work, but it's also very basic work that anyone who is into early childhood development gives a lot of credit to Freud. Mm -hmm. But it's only now kind of a subchapter. As yes. opposed to in the old days, it was the big deal. So, so roughing up, getting out the space, but now it's being more uh, building a freeway with strict or more science and less theoretical right exactly uh you could also say that that buddhism also fits so well with freudian psychology also simply because they were both empirical one was looking on the inside the other one was looking on the outside watching people do what they were doing on the inside. And neither had a complete map of how consciousness works or whatever. They just found right. enough to right. know just what they enough. need to know. Exactly, exactly. That's the whole idea. Well, I'm not sure that... Paul okay, came that's what I was going to point out. He, <laughs> <laughs> he, he certainly came up with <laughs> enough stuff handy. I mean, wow, what, a, what an amazing system of understanding we've been able to bring through with psychology. I'm really glad that I have it. I don't think that I could have understand Buddhism at all without the understanding of psychology, but I don't think that I would have picked up psychology the way that I did if I hadn't been doing all the engineering that I'd done before that. It all kind of accumulates together. Yes, I agree that. Religion was very taboo, and I would be put off just at the word of someone saying God or anything religious, um, <laughs> unless there was more investigation of psychology and how the mind actually worked. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when you do understand it correctly, you can recognize that, yes, everything that Christianity says in metaphor is not actually literal, but it is mental. And so this is the same with the Buddha, that he had the metaphorical understanding of thoughts being devas or whatever, um, but it was enough to um, throw those unwholesome thoughts out. Isn't right, it? exactly, exactly so. That, that somewhere along the line, um, the most important part, keeps getting missed out. And I would say that the important parts come, there's a combination. And that one is the re repetition, the over and over and over and over again to see that gratification. But also the other one is, is to seek pleasure in the escape. 
rather than in the, the original gratification. So when you see the gratification, then you see the dangers, and then we hearken to those dangers and find our escape, and then we relish that we have escaped. That's and so the part. That's the. This part is all that needs to be known. Then, and would you agree that the Buddha's understanding was? Um, did he still have the understanding of devas and stuff and identifying those with thoughts, but we dismiss that as taboo with Christianity? Um, but it just wasn't that important whether the distinction was drawn? Um, actually, Mara is often referred to as the devil. And I would say that that uh, the Buddha was using the word Maya or Mara in a wide variety of context in the sense that, it, yes, it's the devil, but it's also the world. But the world and the devil are the same thing, which would be then the desires, because he talks about Mara's daughters. Is greed, ill will and delusion. So in that regard, you could say then that Mara is Dukkha. And the causes of dukkha, or maybe you could say it's the three parents, <laughs> but he's got it backwards in the sense of the three daughters of, of Mara. So dukkha's uh, caused by uh, uh, moha loba dosa. Yes, I guess all you need to know is that these things arise and pass away, not whether they come from the brain or come from anywhere else, just that they are senses and that they yes. can be unwholesome and that we can throw them out. Precisely so. That's the whole point is, is that from that point of gratification, can we arrive at the escape? Yes. From the, excuse me, you're right. Can we arrive at the escape when we start in the gratification? Because the gratification here, we could think of as the unwholesome thoughts in the mind. And if we continue those unwholesome thoughts, we're going to become selfish and greedy and be in suffering and dukkha because we're seeking gratification, possibly of the senses, like the brothel and getting drunk and uh, getting angry or doing all the things. So would these be called Sukhavedana, uh, pleasant feelings? Yes, Sukhavedana, Dukhavedana, precisely so. Uh, and so that concept both refers to liking and satisfaction but we do we just how do we distinguish between those two in the poly of the the rupa like the coming from the sense pleasures and the ones coming from the mind does that make sense yes it does and i would point you to sutta number 10 the um, um the satipatthana sutta where the where the buddha harps on the distinction between both internally and externally, internally and externally is repeated over and over and over again in there to make sure that you understand the distinctions between, because we, a lot of us can't, a lot of us, we can't tell the difference between what's inside and what's outside. That's and what so, sends people to the brothel that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's the sense pleasure of the outside. But we also have the sense pleasure of the inside, which could also then be called thought of as mental pleasures. And one of the mental pleasures then would be uh, the mental pleasures of, oh, 
I don't have any need or reason to go to the brothel at all. I am free from that. And that would be a mental pleasure to have of, well, I'm glad I don't have to go to the brothel. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so um, everything is either inside or outside. And when we begin to uh, take our pleasures from the inside, Here's another example, a very clear example, would be the donut and um, uh, Homer. That when he wants that donut, he will take satisfaction. I'm glad that I can resist that donut because it's dangerous. It makes me sick. I can't control myself. But look at me now. I can say no to that donut. Hot diggity dog. I've, I've taken my escape and I feel really good about it. Yes, because donuts aren't permanent, and right, clinging exactly. to dumb essential pleasures is, will result in dukkha. But he might have to do that five seconds later. As soon as he turns his head and is free from the donut, he looks back over and sees that donut again. And then he can say, wait a minute, I don't have to have it again. Exactly, exactly. Right, so this is the repetitiveness of it, is we need to take that, that dang, to see the danger, and take our escape and congratulate ourselves for having just taken that escape over and over and over again. That's the gladdening of the mind. Yeah, Parker, this conversation has been a very interesting one. We were going off in one direction, and well, look what we've done with gratif danger, gratification, and escape. It is the basis of the teaching of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. This is the right viewing that you talk about, and mm -hmm. compared to right view, that's what it starts out with. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. what the viewing is: is to see the danger, the view, the uh, the skill of right noble view is to look so that we can see the dukkha. So that and is it correct in pain. saying that this is what the Buddha talks about is the first step on the path or the first factor is the right view? Uh, when he says right view comes first, that means kind of an overall view of that you do have an overall kind of philosophy that you do, in fact, want to finish with suffering. That there's a problem here and some there's right. something that makes me not satisfied and yeah okay right and we can do something about it yes so that's how right view comes first but then the way that right view and right sati and right effort run and circle around each other that's the way yes. to look at it is that these three things work together and so they develop each other as a skill so that the stronger your sati the easier the effort Normally, the reason why it takes so much effort is because we're very slow. We don't see things very well. But if we can keep coming back and keep coming back, then we have the yes, and exactly. And right. So by keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back, that develops the skill. I mean, that's true with music. It's true with sports. Any kid that wants to learn to play baseball, he has to practice. How about basketball? How many times does the kid have to actually bounce the ball before he learns how to dribble? Exactly. And the joke is that you don't get good enough at shooting a ball where at some point the ball shoots itself. 
And exactly. you keep practicing the skill and repeating it over and over. Right, exactly. That's exactly what we mean with the, with Zen and the art of archery. Once you've gotten the skills down, the, the arrow launches itself. There's nothing to it. Yes, metaphorically, it launches itself. But there's still the effort. But that effort is spring-loaded now because the skill's been developed over right, and over. Right, because it was developed so many times. Over and over and over again, we practiced it. We practice that music. We practice that Zen shot of with the arrow. We practice that dribble and that uh, rim shot over and over again. If we, if the humans can practice that stuff, why can't we practice that with being happy? <laughs> exactly. Practice <laughs> so, that so. with being joyful. Practice that with being friendly. That's the kind of things that we need. Instead of practicing martial arts or practicing warfare, we can learn things. If we keep repeating them over and over again, we get very good at it. So let's find what's really worthwhile practicing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it looks to me like seeing dukkha is a very, very good thing to learn to practice. If we can see the danger, we can escape. And then our life is free if we can escape. Yes, because those other skills are in fact dangerous. They're going, joining the army and learning all the skills that they need you to learn there that it's a whole lot easier just to gladden the mind and not need to do any of that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Parker, well, let's finish this. I thought we were going to have a 10-minute conversation and we've gone nearly an hour and a half at it. And I think that this is really valuable. This is a good one. I think we can also probably find some snippets that you might want to put in for um, um, the Dhamma dudes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so where the Dhamma dudes is at is um, the videos are probably going to be from 20 minutes to an hour or so. And um, they're more edited. Uh, they have intros now and thumbnails. Um, to make it more attractive and it's uh, videos that will be accessible to new viewers. Okay. Well, I'm sure you can find something useful in this one because this is a really uh, interesting way of looking at it, this whole concept of gratification, danger, and escape. I like to escape. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right, great. (laughs) Okay, Parker, we'll see you later. See you later. Great. Okay. It's been great. Bye bye. Bye. (laughs)